Alrighty then, it is time for the traditional unrelated tangential story where you wonder why I'm including it because it's completely unrelated, but then it turns out that this cold open sets the complete thematic tone for the whole show, and oh my god, isn't art fun. So, here we go. This is no surprise, but I hate the film The Last Jedi. I know some people say that hate is a strong word, but no word in the tongue of man or elf can express the sheer rage that that film induces in me. I hate The Last Jedi. That movie makes me boil with rage. I seethe. Even now, I am seething. Have you ever seethed? Because I'm seething. I hate The Last Jedi so much that every single artistic endeavor I have made in the years since it came out, I have somehow managed to include a reference to just how much I hate The Last Jedi, how much I consider it to be a crime against humanity, and how Ryan Johnson should be brought before The Hague. After seeing The Last Jedi in the cinema, I swore that I would never again pay to see anything related to Star Wars ever again. And I haven't. And this was a big deal for me, because I've been to the midnight premiere of every Star Wars film dating back to the 90s when they released the special editions. I went to the midnight premiere of The Last Jedi, and it was the last Star Wars film I saw in the theatres. So, cut to a couple of years ago, when the last Star Wars movie to come out, The Rise of Skywalker, was released in cinemas. I did not go to see it. It was the first Star Wars movie ever in my lifetime that I did not go to the midnight premiere of. And it turns out that that was a good call, because Rise of Skywalker is utter dog shit. It is objectively one of the worst movies ever made. How bad is it if you haven't seen it? Well, it has magic cranberries, Burning Man, and the main characters ride goats on the outside of a spaceship. It is a dumpster fire of awful. And while it might be objectively worse than The Last Jedi, I still maintain that the only reason Rise of Skywalker is as bad as it is, and remember, it's one of the worst things mankind has ever done, the only reason why Skywalker is that bad is because Ryan Johnson is an utterly shit human being who deliberately tanked the franchise because he hated the idea of people liking something he didn't invent. So anyway, that's background for this story. During the COVID lockdown, my best buddy and comedy partner, Jacques Barrett, had the idea that we could record a reaction video of me watching Rise of Skywalker for the first time. Because JB had seen it, he knew exactly how bad it was, and he thought that there might be some good comedy in making me suffer through it. And it's sound reasoning. Good comedy is tragedy, and there is nothing more tragic than the death of everyone's collective childhood. I can't fault Jacques' intentions here. So we pour out a couple of rum and cokes, 
boot up a copy of Rise of Skywalker, and turn on the microphones for some quality comedy banter that we can release for the entertainment of all of you lovely people. And we did. And that tape has never been released. It never will. Because instead of being comedy dynamite, my reaction to watching Rise of Skywalker is what Jacques has described as, and I'm quoting here, two and a half hours of incoherent screaming and the sound of you breaking things. I hated that movie that much. Which is a very, very long-winded way of explaining why it took me over a month to do a show about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Because Queen Elizabeth II was Rise of Skywalker, and her and her entire royal family make me so incoherently angry that we all had to wait over a month for me to calm down enough to put these things into human words. Otherwise, this show would have just been two hours of... Here, finally, is a counterpoint to the disgustingly whitewashed hagiography of Betty that we've had to endure for the last month. The sickening spin that has tried to turn what Hannah Arendt would have called the banality of evil into someone we're told we should have loved and adored. Not just tolerated, not just liked, but adored. And there is no amount of Murdoch yellow journalism that is going to convince me that Queen Elizabeth was a good person. I've been sitting on this show for over a month, which I think is an appropriate amount of time and, quite frankly, an out-of-character amount of restraint on my behalf. On the 8th of September, 2022... Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha passed away at the age of 96. Only the good die young. Only the good die young. You might know her better as Queen Elizabeth II. She died at nearly a century of age, and a large part of the world went absolutely fucking insane. Millions and millions of people lost their ability to reason. Because they were, and I still can't quite process the reasoning behind this, but millions and millions of people were sad that she had died. Again, I don't quite understand why, because Queen Elizabeth II was not a good person. She was, in fact, a very bad person by an extraordinary number of metrics that one might use to measure such things. Perhaps even an evil person. Now, maybe she was the loving mother, grandmother, aunt, and cousin that her family made her out to be. I can't measure that. And in that family, things like cousins often overlap. What she was like as a private person will probably never be public knowledge, and I can't make that call here. But what I can do, and what I'm going to do, is judge Elizabeth Windsor as a public figure, as a queen, 
as the regent of the British Commonwealth and the head of her own personal religion. And when we do that, things don't look good for old Black Betty. Bam a lamb. When Elizabeth passed, terms like universally beloved and universally mourned were thrown around with wanton abandon. The Australian Prime Minister and the Australian Governor General used terms like on behalf of all Australians, and none of those statements are correct. Because I'm Australian, and I'm about to spend a fair amount of time explaining why I fucking despised Queen Elizabeth. Why I have done so for many years, and why I'm not the slightest bit upset that she died, and why I am not nearly alone on this matter. In my last show, before the Queen died, I called her a whore. In light of her death, I am not backing down from that statement. I am, in fact, doubling down. 40,500,000 all in. In the famous words of the late Larry King, Expand on that. This show is going to upset a lot of people. Probably already has upset a lot of people. And I'm comfortable with that. If you've been upset by this show, then you're the exact person that needs to have their cage rattled. If you think it's in poor taste, then perhaps you're right, but entertainment is subjective. If you think that it's improper to speak ill of the dead, then perhaps you should think about how much a person's actions while they were alive influence how they're discussed once they're deceased. And if you think it improper to disrespect the Queen, then you need to realize that respect is a two-way street. Respect given requires respect offered, and Elizabeth, her family, and her empire have never given a scintilla of respect to anyone not named Windsor. And I do need to give an explicit disclaimer before we dive in. I am Australian. Australia is a part of the British Commonwealth. That means that my head of state is currently King Charles III, the King of Australia. I despise this fact. It burns me. It makes my skin crawl. I have been a very staunch Republican for my entire life. That's lowercase Republican, by the way. Those, not those nut jobs in the United States. That's different. Since my early teens, I have been campaigning for Australia to become a republic, for Australia's head of state to actually be an Australian, and to finally be done with this frankly repugnant royal nonsense. So as much as I'm never objective, I am truly and powerfully partisan on this issue. So keep that in mind as you listen. I have a lot of skin in the game here, and while this show is, and as it always has been, based in fact, and I will be citing my sources, I fucking hate the Queen. Present tense, it hasn't diminished just because she's looking up at us. Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, and Sovereign of the Most Noble Order of the Garter. That's already quite the mouthful, and that's only the short version of it. That was her official title. Personally, she was Elizabeth 
Alexandra Mary Windsor of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Anyone with that amount of names in their name is probably not a good person. It's not a perfect metric, but it holds true more often than it doesn't. There's a reason I don't go by Damien Mark Smith and emphasize that it's Mark with a C. It makes me sound like a nonce. Imagine if I was Damien Mark Smith of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. You'd think I was a prat, and you'd be right. Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. You might think that that sounds pretty German, and you'd be right. The Queen of England was German. That's reasonably common knowledge, but it always bears repeating. What you need to understand is just how staggeringly inbred the European royal families are. I went into this a little bit when I covered Queen Victoria, and I don't like double handling, but nearly all of the royals in Europe, pick any country, they are all direct blood relatives. They're cousins. And when they marry each other and have children, and act surprised when those children come out not entirely cooked, I have no desire to fall down the very deep and very complex rabbit hole of European history, but what we're talking about here is known as the House of Hanover. This is so incredibly dense and complicated, and I will be leaving it largely alone for today, but essentially, since the 1700s, Britain has been ruled by Germans of the House of Hanover, for crazy complex reasons that we really don't have time to get into. When I say that there's crazy complex reasons, that's things like the very famous Jacobite Rebellion. And to start talking about the Jacobite Rebellion, I'd have to lead with the fact that it was called the Jacobite Rebellion, and why was it called the Jacobite Rebellion when the leader's name was James, and it gets more complicated from there. Has anyone seen this knave? He's wanted for daring to question why we call this the Jacobean era when the king's name is James and not Jacob. So, for 300 years, because reasons, the British monarchy have been Germans from the House of Hanover. And this is where we get the term Hanoverian Madness from. Basically, the Hanoverian Madness is a term used to describe the phenomenon of every time a royal is born in Europe in the last 300 years, everyone crossing their fingers and hoping that that royal isn't so inbred that they're an absolute fucking lunatic. Results vary wildly. For every Queen Victoria, there's a King George III. In case you didn't know, George III is the eponymous king of the famous play-slash-film The Madness of King George. Among many other things, America wasn't too fond of him. They had a little bit of a rebellion over it. Every Hanoverian is in some way insane. It's just a matter of degrees. The Hanoverian madness will slowly be bred out of the line, eventually, it is worth noting that the princes William and Harry have, rebelliously, not married someone directly related to them. I know, shock horror. But it is also worth noting that according to the royals, it's much better to give birth to some malformed Hanoverian mutant than it is to couple with someone who is slightly ethnic like Meghan Markle. Did you ever play that game of... What's something that's crass when poor people do it, but classy when rich people do it? Well, how about marrying your cousin? 
When some hayseed from Sister Fuck Alabama marries his cousin, we call him an inbred hick, and rightfully so. But when Queen Elizabeth marries her cousin, she's a classy lady for maintaining the purity of the bloodline. You are the most wonderful husband and son I ever had. And that's what she did. She married her cousin. The thing I hate third most in this world is double standards. Second most is Libertarians, and number one, as established, is The Last Jedi. So, in that order. Last Jedi, Libertarians, double standards. Three most hated things. But back to the Royals. So, very occasionally, like lightning striking a cobra, one of these Royals would marry someone who wasn't directly related to them, but was perhaps a second cousin. And that's how you get more titles added to your name. So you start out with Sax, and then Coburg, and then you add a little bit of Gotha when you marry someone who only has the same great-grandparents that you do instead of grandparents. And then the royals wonder why they have weak minds and weaker chins. Take a look at an old photo of a young Prince William. The Diana Spencer genes were doing what they could. He was pretty handsome back in the day, but it was only a matter of time before the old Hanoverian blood scalped him like a tomahawk. The Hanover line technically ended with the death of Queen Victoria, since her husband-slash-cousin was the very German Albert of Saxe-Coburg, and the upper classes like to pretend that this is all very important, but the whole name thing is just a bunch of nonces playing silly buggers, so it doesn't really matter in the end. Except in one very specific case. Here, we fast forward to the year 1917. The world has been on fire for three years at this point because of all of these nonces playing silly buggers resulted in the deaths of millions and millions of poor people dying in the most horrific ways that you can ever imagine. This is known as the Great War, or the First World War, and it's always important to note that the monarchs of Britain and Germany, nations who were violently at war with each other for four years, their kings were first cousins. George and Kaiser Wilhelm were first cousins. This whole thing is a scam. I don't know why people keep defending this royalty nonsense. It is just... So 1917. The biggest war of all time is raging on, and like I say, millions and millions of people are dying horrifically while rich people who don't have to go and fight keep telling them how awesome it is to go and fight. The term they used was the Latin dulce decorum est pro patria mori, or it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Except that it's all of you who will be dying, I'll be in my palace with champagne and caviar, let me know how it all goes, off you go, die now. So the war's been raging on for three years at this point. And by 1917, technology had gone a long way even from when the war started. So by this time, the Germans had invented one of the first ever bomber aircraft. It was known as the Gotha G-4, named after the German city of Gotha. And every day, these G-4 bombers would fly across the English Channel and drop some bombs on London. Now, this was nothing like the Blitz that happened during World War II. These were very rickety, early biplane bombers. It's a miracle that they were able to fly in the first place. And when I say bomb, 
What I mean is like kind of like the round cartoon thing that would blow Daffy Duck's beak backwards. This license permits Bearer to shoot a fricassee. Fricass hey, bud, how do you spell fricassee? It wasn't a particularly dangerous bombing campaign. Not a lot of people died or were injured. We're talking casualties in the dozens at most. But this is 1917. You've got to remember that. This is only 14 years after the Wright brothers invented the aircraft. The very idea of flight was science fiction to most people, let alone the fact that someone could now fly over the English Channel and drop a bomb on your breakfast table. The idea of total war was new to people. Up until this point, war was always something that happened somewhere else. Unless your city was directly under siege, or unless you were a soldier, you never experienced war. Ever. Until the Great War. That's when everything changed. And that's why it's the start of modern history. So all of a sudden, this big war that was engulfing continental Europe, the one the English consider themselves safe from because they're an island that hadn't been invaded since the Vikings, the war was suddenly in their capital city, and it was being brought to them by a German bomber named the Gotha. The same name as their own royal family. So King George V made the very tactical decision to change his name. He thought it might be a good idea to downplay the whole German thing, considering the Germans were dropping bombs on London. So on July 17th, 1917, Georgie Boy made the following proclamation. Now, therefore, we, out of our royal will and authority, and we're going to use random capital letters to confuse anybody narrating this, do hereby declare and announce that as from the date of this, our royal proclamation, our house and family shall be styled and known as the House and Family of Windsor, and that all the descendants in the male line of our said grandmother, Queen Victoria, who are subject of these realms, other than the female descendants who may marry or have married, shall bear the said name of Windsor. And from that point on, we all got to pretend that the people on our money were English and always had been. German? Oh no, of course nobody here is German. What a silly idea. We've been English the whole time. And that's why Elizabeth Windsor was Elizabeth Windsor and not Elizabeth Saxe-Coburg Gotha. It's also worth noting that George V was the only one of his cousins to make it out of the war still being king. The position of Kaiser in Germany was dissolved as part of the Treaty of Versailles, and as for Russia's Tsar Nicholas, well, let's just say that their Republican movement was a little bit more, uh, pointed. So for anyone who thinks I'm being disrespectful to the royals for wanting Australia to immediately be a republic, you should be thankful that all I'm doing is pushing for a referendum. As much as I would personally love to take the Yekaterinburg route, this is me being diplomatic, okay? So there's the backstory. On to Queen Elizabeth. The first thing we need to get out of the way regarding Queen Elizabeth, the first sickening bubble of tabloid lies and propaganda that we need to pop, is the whole World War II thing. 
the first thing any royal defender will bring up in regards to Queen Elizabeth is her service during World War II. The way the palace has sold this story over the years, you'd think it was Queen Elizabeth on her own in a truck, swerving to dodge bombs as Stukas screamed in overhead, having the wheel in one hand, a cigar in her mouth, while she shoots a Vickers machine gun in the other single hand, taking pot shots at the Luftwaffe. No, not at all. That is bullshit. Queen Elizabeth was 13 years old when war broke out and 14 when Britain decided to give a shit about the war. If she joined the fighting then, I would have actually been impressed. But she didn't. And fair enough, this is one of the rare times in this show when I'll actually concede the point. She was 14. Nobody expects her to fight, right? Buckingham Palace was hit by five bombs during the Blitz. And instead of fucking off to Canada, the royal family decided to stay in England. The press treated this like they'd just announced a cure for cancer. The royals stayed in the most luxurious bunker England had to offer, light years from any actual danger. They actually moved 20 miles outside London, but we don't like to talk about that because it doesn't fit the image. And the ever pro-royal press made it look like King George was on the roof of the palace with a Piat launcher, daring Jerry to drop another bomb on him, and that categorically did not happen. They were underground. Elizabeth joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service when she turned 18. And again, I'll concede the point here. She was one of the few people in the British Commonwealth that wouldn't have been able to lie about her age. She was kind of famous. This was in August 1944. Note that date. Because that was a month after Operation Overlord. After D-Day. The Blitz was long over, and the Germans were on the run on every front. Allied bombers were redecorating Germany on the daily. To quote Air Marshal Hugh Dowding here, they were, and I quote, making the rubble bounce. Saying that Queen Elizabeth joined the war effort to fight Hitler is like me saying that I'm doing this show to fight Hitler. It's well-intentioned, sure, but the job's kind of already been done. And nobody's in any real danger. Now, Elizabeth didn't have to join the auxiliaries. That needs to be mentioned. She could have done nothing like the rest of the royals, but she went out of her way to do something. It wasn't much. I mean, it was barely anything. But it was something. So we should give credit where due. This was the one good deed that Elizabeth ever did in her life. But it's nowhere near the Michael Bay version of Pearl Harbor that Buckingham Palace wants you to believe. And that's a neat summary of the life of Queen Elizabeth. Most of what you hear about her is sanitized bullshit. The result of the greatest PR department in the history of mankind successfully whitewashing an objectively, intellectually incurious, morally bankrupt, colonialism-justifying, genocide-endorsing, pedophile-defending, white supremacist organization headed by Elizabeth Windsor. The reign of Queen Elizabeth II is less about what she did and is categorized more by what she didn't do. 
Her reign is one of absence. Absence of action, absence of leadership, absence of morality. It feels like upon the crown being placed on her head, she made the clear, conscious, and permanent decision to never, ever, under any circumstances, do anything that might cause the gravy train to wobble in the slightest. She might not have actively done a lot of the nasty stuff, and she might not have even supported it, but she certainly tolerated a staggering amount of evil perpetrated by the British Empire in the name of the British Empire, in the name of Queen Elizabeth II, and she tolerated this evil because it kept her as one of the richest people in the history of mankind. Elizabeth Windsor was born into wealth and privilege that almost anyone else on the planet literally cannot conceive of, and she spent her entire life ensuring that it stayed that way. Was she an outlandishly evil figure like the dictators of the mid-20th century? No, but she might possibly be the most selfish person who has ever lived. A good way to determine what one is guilty of is to see what traits they laud and claim for themselves. Generally, the opposite is true. Declaring an abundance of any particular virtue is generally a sign of the absence of that virtue. In the time since her death, I've seen the members of the cult of the monarchy drone on and on about the Queen's selflessness, of her service to the Crown and to the Commonwealth and to humanity at large, and for the most part, it's taken for granted. It is never questioned. The Queen lived a life of service. But did she? We're told that she did. But what is it that the Queen actually did? Seriously, I'm asking, what did the Queen actually do? Have a think about it. I've asked this question a lot recently, and I've never, not once, got an adequate response. Or any response, actually. What did Queen Elizabeth actually do? Here is where people usually stumble because they've been indoctrinated their whole lives to believe that the monarchy holds some sort of crucial role in the functioning of society, but nobody can ever quite define what it is. The best answer I got, and it isn't a good answer, but at least it's an answer, is that the Queen was a ceremonial figure, trotted out to christened ships and open shopping centres. Which is a role, I guess, but I've also seen any number of D-list celebrities do exactly the same thing. And I put to you the following question. If your job can be done in the exact same fashion by Daryl Braithwaite, is it really a job? Oh, Betty, where do we even begin? 96 years of parasitic leeching of the entire planet is a broad amount of time to cover, even for this show. So, how do we even break it down? Well, I think the best way would be to start small. I think we'll begin with the personal, then branch out into the financial, 
and then finally close with the political. But all of these are intertwined, and none of it paints a pretty picture. First of all, we need to address the big issue, and it's going to colour everything that comes after it. Every single fact that I present in this show is going to have to be in the context of this one issue. And it's a policy known as the Queen's Consent. The Queen's Consent comes about because the Queen was, well, the Queen. And I guess now that Chucky Boy is in charge, it's going to be the King's Consent, but we all have the inertia of spending our entire lives under a Queen, so I'll be calling it the Queen's Consent, and for the most part, this show is going to reference the Queen. That's just easier that way. In a nutshell, all of this comes about because the Queen was the Queen. The Head of State. The Numero Uno. The Big Boss. She was the Queen of England the Queen of Australia, the Queen of Canada, the Queen of Jamaica, you get the idea. And because of this, and a whole bunch of cultural inertia dating back to well before William the Conqueror, if you want to have a government in the Commonwealth, you need to get things okayed by the Queen. Now, there was always a convention that the Queen, or her representatives, the Governors General, they'd just rubber stamp everything. That's the deal. The Queen gets to keep living the high life at the public's expense, but we get to have a republic in all but name. That was how it was supposed to work, and that's how it usually did work. And this is known as the Royal Ascent. And it's the cornerstone of Westminster democracy, which will be explored further in a Patreon show, because I'm sure most people aren't as fascinated with democratic structures as I am. But the Royal Ascent is basically the Queen just going, yep, I sign off on whatever the people decide to do. That's the deal. But the Royal Assent is different to the Queen's Consent, which is now the King's Consent, but again, we'll keep this simple and call everything Queen. The Queen's Consent is thusly. Before any law is passed in the Commonwealth, the Queen gets to have a look at it and go, yay, or nay. So if you wanted to pass a law that would have affected the Queen personally, as in her finances, her properties, whether or not she should pay taxes, anything like that, that proposed law had to be sent to the Queen first. And she could take a look at this draft law and say, oh, well, we're not into that. And that was the end of it. Fuck your democratic process, fuck voting, fuck accountability, fuck the electoral process. If you wanted to do something that would harm the Queen's finances or make her do something that she didn't feel like doing, then that legislation would never even make it to the House to be debated. Technically, she could do this with any law. But she was such a nice lady that she only ever rode roughshod over democracy when it was her skin in the game. She didn't go declaring wars or anything because she was such a wonderful person. So how many times did Queen Elizabeth exercise the Queen's consent? How many times did she look at laws and go, oh, no, not, not into that at all? As of February 2021, a year and a half ago, The Queen had done this, drumroll please, 1,062 times. 
that we know about. There are hundreds of economic policies that she shot down. 11 regarding public transport, 10 bills related to public housing, 7 in regards to national health infrastructure, 1 regarding the British Museum, 1 about parking violations, a 1986 law about the practices of salmon fishing, and at least 2 laws regarding animal welfare. All of them got shot down by the personal signature of the Queen because it might have cost her money. That's the Queen's consent. You can have democracy as long as it doesn't cost me money. If you're wondering whether Queen Elizabeth was one of the people named in the Paradise Papers leak as hiding millions of dollars in offshore Cayman Islands holding accounts, then she absolutely was. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I can't divulge information about that customer's secret illegal account. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a customer. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a secret. Oh, crap. I certainly shouldn't have said it was illegal. Ah, it's too hot today. Simply put, Queen Elizabeth is the greatest embezzler in history. Now, for all of you wonderful people out there who weren't smart enough to be born into a royal family, I want you to take a moment to imagine what it would be like if the next 1,062 bills you got, you could just say, I don't feel like paying that, and it would go away. Tell me. Would that make a difference to your financial situation? Would you be better off if the next thousand bills you got you could just ignore? Might that help? Never forget, rich people are not smarter than you. They don't work harder than you. They don't hustle and grind. In fact, for the most part, they don't do much of anything. They just won the birth lottery. And as soon as everyone accepts that they lost the game as soon as they were born, that the game was rigged the entire time, then we might finally start to see some change. Starting with liquidating monarchies. You have to remember, rich people don't get rich. They're born rich, and then they get richer. Like with Elizabeth Windsor. She was a very canny businesswoman. Do you want to know how to act like a rich person? Well, you don't go spending your own money if you can help it. God, can you imagine a rich person spending their own money? That's madness. The way to act like a rich person is to spend taxpayer money first and only use your own substantial wealth once you've bled everyone else dry. That's a next-level economic maneuver. You can see it right now in real time with Elon Musk talking about Starlink in Ukraine, like he generously gave them his satellite internet network. No, the Pentagon paid for that. He's just taking the credit and saying that he built all of it. He didn't spend his own money because he's rich. That's what they do. Queen Elizabeth, and now King Charles, own a substantial property portfolio that includes some of England's most lucrative business estates. These include, but are not limited to, a fair portion of high-end shopping centre Regent Street and the duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall, which are both major economic centres not only in England, but the entire world. And Queen Elizabeth owned it. Personally. As you can imagine, 
these areas were hit pretty hard when coronavirus happened. Because everything was hit pretty hard by the coronavirus. The Queen's economic portfolio dropped about £500 million in value almost overnight due to coronavirus. So Queen Elizabeth, one of the world's richest people, applied for government assistance. And then Prime Minister Boris Johnson signed off on the bill that would see the British taxpayer make up any shortfall in the Queen's personal revenue lost from her business portfolio due to COVID. The Queen got COVID relief at taxpayer expense. But she was a lovely lady, wasn't she? Buckingham Palace applied for and was granted every single COVID relief measure that was meant to assist the most vulnerable during the pandemic. The British taxpayer even footed the bill for heating the palace during a time when lockdown meant that nobody except the royal family and their staff were allowed to be anywhere near there. Speaking of taxpayers, the Queen declared herself exempt from pretty much all forms of taxation. She didn't like the idea of being taxed on her staggering amount of wealth, so she just made it so that the law didn't apply to her. Queen's consent, baby, what can't it do? In 2010, she made a big song and dance about paying a token amount of income tax so that her press department could spin the angle that she was a wonderful person who pulled her weight even when she technically didn't have to. But this income tax payment that she voluntarily paid, the legislation of which strictly stresses the word voluntary, this was a drop in the bucket of the actual tax she should have been paying her entire life. The actual big ticket items like inheritance tax or capital gains tax, she shot that shit down before it even made parliament. Didn't even make the floor. Queen Elizabeth was easily and comfortably the biggest tax cheat in the history of humans exchanging goods of value. It's not even close. She is that far in front. Members of the Windsor family have their finances sealed from the public. They are exempt from freedom of information requests. That's unusual. Put it into perspective... The Windsors are the only people in Britain who are allowed to do that. Nobody else gets to have their finances sealed. Only people directly related to the Queen get to do that. Which means that nobody will ever know exactly how much money and exactly how many assets the royal family have. And that means that those assets will never be taxed. Ever. They are exempt from the most basic financial laws. But they live a life of service, don't they? In the 1970s, when one of the Queen's best friends, the ruthless businessman Roland Tiny Roland, and we'll get around to him in a bit, when Tiny Roland was raping Africa with business practices so unethical that the British Parliament under the Heath administration was getting involved and having to do something about it, When all of this was going on, it started to become apparent just how much of a financial interest Queen Elizabeth had with these shady business dealings in Africa and the truly staggering amount of money that she was making off the whole endeavor. The Heath administration, to its credit, 
proposed new transparency laws to reveal exactly where the Queen's money came from and exactly where it was going, to have the monarchy's business deals be a matter of public record like it is with everyone else. Well, that was the plan, anyway. What actually happened was that Queen Elizabeth stepped in and said, No, we don't like the idea of common people looking at our shady business deals. We'll be amending that law. It is now illegal to look at our finances. Oh, jolly good monarchies are fun. And it remains like that today. We don't really know what King Charles's finances look like because we're not allowed to look. That's the law. We know he's rich, but we'll never know how that money was made and how much of it there is. But I'm sure it's all ethical and above board with no shady or dodgy dealings there, God no. It's not that I've got nothing to hide, I just value my privacy. While she was at it, the Queen also exempted herself from those pesky heritage laws that would make it difficult to build property. And while she was at that, she also decided that she wasn't into that whole wildlife and conservation laws either. She wasn't too keen on that. That would interfere with her ability to do whatever the fuck she wanted whenever the fuck she wanted to. So wildlife and conservation laws did not apply to Queen Elizabeth. The Queen could have hunted a white rhino with a B-52 bomber and it would have been legal. It goes on and on like this. I thought about continuing to provide examples of times when the Queen personally swung her dick around to pass or veto laws to make herself obscenely rich, but how much do you want me to repeat myself? I'll pop it all in the show notes, but it's a seemingly endless list of shady business practices that are highly illegal for anyone that isn't the Queen of England, but she just got a free ride on. Think of the greatest financial criminals in history. People like Bernie Madoff. Well, Queen Elizabeth would consider the sum total of all of Bernie Madoff's crimes to be a slow Tuesday. And to be clear, I'm not saying that Elizabeth Windsor was a criminal. She wasn't. Because she was above the law. The concept of crime simply did not apply to her. Queen Elizabeth II also happens to be the greatest insider trader in history. She was privy to all communication at any government level everywhere in the Commonwealth, which at its height covered about a third of the planet. If you look online, you'll see a lot of photos of Queen Elizabeth with a large red briefcase. This is called a royal box and they were created on the Queen's coronation in 1952. And these boxes were packed with private paperwork and dispatches from numerous prime ministers, ambassadors, ministers, governors, general, business leaders, an assortment of people, really. A good way to look at it is that anyone who had any sort of influence in any field sent a briefing to Queen Elizabeth before they did anything. And she got those briefings 364 days a year. She always took Christmas Day off. Gotta have a little me time, right? Slay, queen. These dispatches contained government policies, economic movements, and other pertinent information. In short, the queen knew what was going to happen in the world before it actually happened. 
Was war about to be declared? Was a nation going to be invaded? Was a new drug going to be released onto the market? Was new legislation going to be passed? You get the idea. Queen Elizabeth got this information every single day, and she got it before anyone else. And using that information, she was able to leverage it to make herself even richer than she already was. And she was already insanely rich. Inconceivably rich. She was able to buy or sell stocks based on accurate information on where the market was heading, not where it was. If there was going to be a new tax announced on a product, then she could dump those shares before they tanked. If a company was about to get a lucrative government contract, she could purchase shares before they peaked. This is called insider trading, and it is highly, highly illegal. For most people. It's not illegal when you're the queen. But she was a fun old lady, wasn't she? She was kind of like everyone's nan. Except if your nan was the most cutthroat business lady in the world and made Jordan Belfort look like a charity worker. It's worth noting that these red boxes and dispatches haven't gone anywhere. They, they didn't disappear when the Queen died. King Charles now gets these briefings every single day, and now it's making him more money than God. You know what a Fugazi is? Well, Fugazi, it's a uh, fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It, it's not fucking real. The system hasn't righted itself just because the Queen died. Each and every one of you is merely getting fucked with a new dick. If you're in the Commonwealth, you pay money out of your taxes so that these people can continue screwing you. And if you're not in the Commonwealth, well, welcome to the global economy. Your trade partners are getting screwed, which means you're getting screwed. And the dick at the end of all of it belonged to Queen Elizabeth. If you've ever not been able to afford something, at least a portion of the blame is directly on Queen Elizabeth II. I don't care who you are on the entire planet, she had that effect on everyone. Queen Elizabeth was a shareholder in British Petroleum, the world's sixth largest oil company, and Rio Tinto, the world's third largest mining concern. That's right, everyone's favorite monarch liked to trade in oil and uranium. In fact, most of Africa has been plundered at the direction of the British Crown through their hatchet man, the corporate raider and head of the Lonroe conglomerate, Roland Tiny Roland. And here we get introduced to one of the biggest pieces of shit in history that you've never heard of. Lonroe is a portmanteau of London and Rhodesia. So there's a clue there. And it is famous for the aforementioned corporate raiding, with their hostile takeovers of smaller companies getting them a near monopoly on mining within Africa in general, and Ghana in particular. Although a lot of their business, as you might expect, operated out of South Africa. Or Rhodesia, if you're racist. Lonro was rather famous for not giving a fuck about any sanctions placed on South Africa during apartheid. Who cares about human rights when there's a shitload of money to be made? Anyway, the royal family owns a ton of shares in Lonro, and Queen Elizabeth's nephew, Angus Ogilvy, 
was on the Lonroe board. He eventually stepped down from the company in 1976 after an internal review by the British Department of Trade found an egregious number of shady business practices, leading to Prime Minister Edward Heath calling Lonroe, and I'm quoting Heath here, an unpleasant and unacceptable face of capitalism. End quote. In 1987, the British Anti-Slavery Society released a report on Lonro's practices in Africa, particularly the Ashanti gold mines in Ghana, in which they witnessed 60 young boys working naked in a pool of cyanide. They were working in cyanide since cyanide splits the gold from the rock, and they were naked because it was Tiny Rowland's policy that they work naked so that they couldn't steal any gold. And I don't know if I mentioned the cyanide, but as you can probably gather, these were not healthy working conditions. And that's Lonro for you. If the name Lonro sounds familiar but you can't quite place it, you probably heard it about 10 years ago during what would become known as the Marikana Massacre. Long story short, miners at the Lonmin Platinum Mine in Marikana, South Africa, and Lonmin is the company that Lonro calls itself these days, corporate restructuring and all, miners at this mine undertook a wildcat strike over the appalling conditions they were working under after a quite impressive number of egregious safety breaches, like working naked in cyanide. Corporate didn't like the idea that the miners were on strike instead of mining, and, well, long story short, a week later, 47 people had been shot. Hence, it's called the Marikana Massacre, and not the Marikana Peaceful Adoption of a Collective Bargaining Agreement. It's unknown what the Queen's position on the Marikana Massacre was, because she never made a public statement about it, but her shares in the company went up quite a bit. One of the sources that I got for this show was a book called Tiny Roland, The Ugly Face of Neocolonialism in Africa, and it describes Roland Roland as, and I'm quoting here, Quote, the Queen's Buccaneer, end quote. Did you know that legally, in accordance with the arcane legal system that was designed by actual Vikings, if you're in the Commonwealth and you see either a swan or a marine mammal, that animal is actually the property of the King or Queen of England? Because why the fuck not? You can all fact-check me on that one. I dare you to fact-check me on that one, because King Charles legally owns all your swans. You know that meme where Alex Jones says, The elites don't want you to know this, but the ducks in the park are free. You can just take ducks. I have 418 ducks. You can tell that's an American meme, because in the British Commonwealth, the ducks aren't free. If you're a fisherman and you catch a sturgeon, you are legally required to first offer it to the monarch. It's not a law that is ever really practiced because it's a stupid fucking law, but it's still a law. King Charles owns all the swans. Fellow Australians, if you vote to become a republic, we can take back our swans. It's a small selling point, but it's weird that it's a selling point. What though the odds be great or small, the stars will go in and win over all, while her loyal sons are marching onward to victory. D. 
did you know that traffic laws don't apply to the royal family? Yeah, they can just do whatever the fuck they like on the road and it's perfectly legal. On estates owned by the Crown, and there are a lot of those estates, the Crown owns 6.6 billion hectares of planet Earth, on those 6.6 billion hectares, there are no traffic rules at all. The rules are whatever crazy bullshit a Hanoverian comes up with on the spot. In 2019, the then-97-year-old Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, the husband of Queen Elizabeth, was involved in a rather hefty two-vehicle collision in Norfolk. Circumstantial evidence would point that the Duke pulled out of a driveway into oncoming traffic without looking, but we'll never know for sure, because as soon as police found out who was driving, all investigation into the accident suddenly ceased, never to be unsealed. Four days later, Philip was spotted driving without wearing a seatbelt, with police asking him politely to please not do that anymore because they had no power to stop him because he was literally above the law. There were numerous attempts over the years to make the royal family subject to the same road rules as everyone else, which is a good idea since the royals drive on the same roads and mow down the same pedestrians as we do. But the Queen was never quite into the idea of having to follow any kind of law, and so the Queen's consent made sure that those laws were always shot down. So Elizabeth Windsor was one of the shadiest financial figures in human history, and only not a criminal because she got to decide when laws applied to her, but is that enough to damn her? She's still our beloved Queen Elizabeth, after all. Sure, she stumbled a few thousand times in regards to the laws of mankind, but aside from that, she must have been a good person, right? Aside from the thousands of times she said, fuck your laws, she has to have been a good person, surely. Oh no, we're not even close to finished. Look at the timestamp on this episode right now. No, because you see, Queen Elizabeth was massively racist. That's pretty much a given, but we do need to address it. She might not have been as vocally racist as the others in her family, but she was still a massive, massive racist. Which is a bit rich for someone from a bloodline so thin that many of them quite literally bled to death. The Hanovers are plagued with anemia. But let's not content ourselves with low-hanging fruit here. Let's not retread the old ground. We all know about the Meghan Markle thing, and if you put the words Prince Philip racism into Google, your computer will explode, because there's that many records, so let's keep this specifically related to Queen Elizabeth II. A recent Freedom of Information request from The Guardian unveiled a trove of documents revealing the Queen's phenomenal racism. Until the late 1960s, and I'm quoting the report here, quote, Coloured immigrants and foreigners, end quote, were banned from serving in Buckingham Palace. Note the use of the term coloured there. I didn't say that. She did. Now, you might be thinking, oh, this was in the 1960s. It was a different time. And sure, we shouldn't judge the past on the mores of today, that's always been a theme of this show, but let's also put it into context. At the same time as the Queen had official no-coloured policy, 
one of her former colonies had people on the fucking moon. It was not a different time. Starting in the 1960s, the same time period, the British Parliament began introducing racial equality laws, sanctifying in law that it was illegal to discriminate against people because of their race or ethnicity. Those bills passed, and the Queen personally signed them into law. But first, she made sure that, as with many laws, these were laws for everyone else and not for her. For over half a century, it has been perfectly legal for Buckingham Palace to fire someone or to refuse to hire them in the first place because they weren't quite the right shade of skin or the right religion or the right gender or they came from a region that the Queen considered icky. And the Queen could do this because she was, again for effect, the head of state. She was the law. We really need to get rid of monarchies. In 1968, the Home Secretary, James Callaghan, stalled the implementation of equal rights laws in Britain until the Queen's lawyers were comfortable that there was no legal or constitutional grounds that could see those same laws be enforced against the Queen. Again, for effect, equal rights was delayed until it was determined that it wouldn't apply to Queen Elizabeth. But she was such a lovely little old lady, wasn't she? Beloved by all. Adored by all. But still, let's just pretend that the 60s were actually different times. Just for a moment, we'll pretend that. What about now? In 2010, the Queen personally oversaw the negotiation of the Equality and Diversity Act for the staffing of the various royal estates. And there are a lot of those but more specifically Buckingham Palace, her personal address. This was an opportunity to get rid of all that outdated racist hiring policy that the palace always had. But you got to remember, the Queen was personally overseeing this legislation. The Queen decided to take out the word coloured, because that was a bit on the nose in 2010, but that's it. That's all that changed. All of the discrimination remained in place, Betty just made it a tiny little bit more woke. Buckingham Palace's official statement regarding these laws refused to elaborate on exactly what legislation it was that they had in place. But they don't deny that the Queen personally exempted herself from these discrimination laws because she loved to discriminate against people. The palace did say that they have a special process in place to deal with claims of discrimination from their employees, but they refused to elaborate further on what that process was. One would have to surmise it sounds something like, well, we investigated ourselves and found that we did nothing wrong. The employee in question left of their own free will, and it's unfortunate that they had that car accident in that tunnel. Such a shame. Let us never ever pretend that the Queen was not staggeringly racist. Oh, and she was a eugenicist, too. Queen Elizabeth and her husband Philip were both of the opinion that only the right types of people should be allowed to breed. It's just that only Philip was public in that sentiment. Elizabeth was much more craven on the matter. What do you know about the Queen's cousins? Well, she married one of them, but I mean the less incestuous relationships. What do you know about them? Not a lot? 
Yeah, that's by design. The palace is one giant PR company, and all they do all day, every day, is try and make the royal family seem relevant and likable and keep the horrific shit that they keep doing out of the papers. Have you ever heard of Nerissa and Catherine Bowes Lyon? I'm guessing you haven't, because that's something the palace would rather everyone didn't know about. These two sisters were first cousins of Queen Elizabeth. Nerissa Bowes Lyon was born in 1919, and Catherine in 1926. Both of them were severely mentally disabled, to the point where they were unable to function. They were non-verbal, and they couldn't perform the most basic tasks for themselves. This is tragic, obviously, and not at all something the eugenically pure House of Windsor wanted people to know about their line. Nerissa Bowes Lyon, first cousin to the Queen, died in 1940 at the age of 21. And her sister Catherine died in 1961 at the age of 35. Which is sad, obviously, but it is often the fate of those with severe mental impairment, especially in that day and age. Oh wait, hang on! I got that wrong! Did I say they died? No, what I meant to say was that they were pronounced dead, not actually dead. They were quietly admitted to the Earlwood Hospital for the Mentally Disabled and left there to rot by the royal family. They weren't actually dead, they were just pronounced dead. None of their family ever visited them, or even acknowledged their existence in any way. Nerissa Bowes-Lyon didn't die in 1940, she died in 1986, and Catherine in 2014 aged 66 and 87 respectively, having spent their entire lives in a mental institution never being visited by any of their family. Their funerals were attended only by hospital staff, and their graves were marked with a plastic tag indicating a serial number, not even a name until the story finally broke in the 2010s and the royal family managed to dip into their billions and billions of dollars and arrange a small plaque as a headstone. They still don't publicly acknowledge that they exist. Oh, and here's something fun. The Queen Mother, the aunt of these two tragic souls, she was famously a patron of the Royal Mencap Society, a charity for people with mental disabilities because the royals are all wonderful people with a sense of irony. The universally beloved Queen Elizabeth, for whom we had a public holiday in mourning, which cost just the Australian economy an estimated $8 billion in lost revenue, sweeping her own family under the rug because they didn't fit the image she wanted projected. In other stuff that you probably already know about, so I won't go into into detail, One of Elizabeth's sons, Charles, who is now the king, cheated on his wife, Princess Diana Spencer, and the queen wrote a letter to Diana expressing a desire for her to initiate a divorce. Now, if we were to go all tinfoil hat, we could look at how after the divorce, Diana became more popular than ever, started dating a brown person, and then they both died in a complete accident that very conveniently solved a lot of problems for the Queen, but that's obviously the realms of conspiracy theory, isn't it? Isn't it? What can be proven is the utter shitshow involving the Queen's second son, Andrew. Andrew. 
Andrew was very good friends with the late Jeffrey Epstein and his girlfriend, Jelaine Maxwell. Prince Andrew is currently implicated in a number of particularly heinous crimes involving trafficking minors for the purposes of sexual assault. And while this is still in motion, a civil suit was brought against Andrew by one of his victims, which ended in an out-of-court settlement paid by the Queen. Although it remains unclear if the Queen paid blood money out of her own pocket, or, given her track record, she somehow managed to con that money out of the taxpayer. So we can append the title, Shielder of Pedophiles, to Queen Elizabeth's list of honorifics. And then there's the Queen's other son, Edward, who doesn't seem to have done any vile shit at all that we know about. Yet. Alright, so with that preponderance of evidence, we can surmise that Queen Elizabeth Windsor was an absolute piece of shit as a person, but what about as a queen? Surely she must have been good for the British Empire. Well, strap on your seatbelt because we're just getting started. Oh, and I'm kidding about the seatbelt thing. Remember, the Queen vetoed the law that said she had to wear a seatbelt. It's good to be the Queen. If you were to blindly throw a dart at a map of the world, there's a very good chance that that dart will land in a place that has suffered under the British monarchy. A place that has had its resources drained, its riches stolen, a place where the people have suffered and diminished in order to fuel the largesse of the Windsors. This next part is going to be largely surface level, because to do this any justice, I would have to rename this podcast Crimes of the British Empire, and we'd need to do at least a hundred episodes. So a shallow dive it is. And, of course, we'll be restricting this to things that were done while Elizabeth was queen. So things that happened while she was merely a large part of the royal family aren't on the list. For an atrocity to make this list, it has to have occurred while Betty was the big boss. Now, for all of this next segment, you're going to have to remember what I've already covered. And that's the fact that the Queen had the power to influence laws and foreign policy, and frequently did so for her own interests. Monarchists and fans of the Queen will always be quick to point out that she was merely a figurehead and had a ceremonial role and that this was all the fault of those pesky prime ministers that were elected by the people. Betty was a saint who remained outside the grubby business of politics. She can't be tarnished with the actions of the British Empire. Again, it's a bad argument, but it's the only one they have. As we know, Elizabeth II was not apolitical. She was not neutral. And she most certainly wielded the power of a monarch. It's just that she only did so when it suited her. So all of this that I'm about to cover, it was in her power to, if not stop it, then at least influence it. And you need to remember that for all of this, she did absolutely fucking nothing. This all occurred on her watch, and at the very best, she was apathetic to it, and at worst, she was culpable. Remember, 1,062 uses of the Queen's consent that we know about. Not a single one of them said, hey, maybe don't commit these war crimes. Being an apologist for the Queen in these issues makes you a traitor to the human race. But then deep down, we always knew that those people were. Tories. 
They never, ever change. They are mean little people. So all of this can be summed up as the British saying, you see all this land and stuff that you have? That's ours now. What are you going to do about it? Which is a tale as old as time itself. Or at least as old as the Saxons. Elizabeth became queen on February 2nd, 1952. She was officially crowned a year later, but 1952 is when she took the reins. And shit started happening immediately. Lizzie was in Kenya when the news broke that her father, George VI, had died, making Lizzie the queen. Nobody voted for either of them. It all happened because they were the same family, and this is obviously the best possible way to establish governance. I simply can't think of a better system. Who does he think he is? <laughs> I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away! Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed! So this has officially made her Queen Elizabeth II. And just by becoming Queen Elizabeth II, she immediately started pissing people off. Like most of Scotland. Elizabeth was always determined to keep her name as her regnal name. This is complicated, but the normal way for things to go was for royals to change their name when they became king or queen, again, because reasons... But Elizabeth bucked that tradition by remaining Elizabeth. And this shouldn't have been a big deal, but it was. Here's why. Scotland united with England in 1603, under James VI. The way we call this the Jacobean era, when the king's name is James and not Jacob. James VI was the cousin of Elizabeth I, who died without any heirs, making James the king. When James... <clears throat> acquired Scotland in 1603, he ceased to be James VI of England and became James I, King of England and Scotland. So Scotland technically never had a Queen Elizabeth I. So when Elizabeth II decided to go by Elizabeth II, it kind of shat over 400 years of regnal naming convention in Scotland and a lot of people were pissed off. Scottish folk singer Hamish Imlach had a hit song called The Scottish Breakaway, which has the lyric How can ye the secondless when the first has never been? How can ye hear secondless when the first has never been? It's actually written as yin. So the Scots were pissed off that Lizzie was Lizzie the second and not Lizzie the first of England and Scotland. It is an astonishingly petty hill to die on, in my opinion, especially when compared to the actual crimes against humanity that I'm about to drop, but I include it for the sake of completeness. 
So while Elizabeth was in Kenya finding out that she was the queen and staying in an extravagant hotel, this is about the same time when Winston Churchill was thinking that Kenya had a lot of fertile farming land that could be used to make a lot of money. And all of that farmland was being wasted feeding the natives of Kenya. That won't do at all. So the fertile highlands of Kenya were declared to be only for the use of white people, and everyone else was rounded up and put into camps. Remember in the last show when I said African politics and history is crazy complicated? Same thing here. What you need to know is that Kenya didn't become its own country until 1963, and before that it was a British protectorate. And by country, I mean the indigenous people there had always thought of themselves as a country going back tens of thousands of years, but this is the mid-20th century, so countries only count as countries when white people draw the maps. So, 1963. And when I say British protectorate, I mean that they didn't so much protect it as much as they took all the stuff. But we already know this. So this event is going to become known as the Mau Mau Rebellion. Why it's called the Mau Mau Rebellion is anyone's guess. Historians differ as to the exact etymology, but pretty much all of the explanations given translate Mau Mau into some variation of get the fuck out of our country. The textbooks translate it differently. I'm using artistic license to get across the spirit of the message. So yeah, right as the king is dead, long live the queen is being said, the British moved to seize the most valuable land in Kenya from the people living in Kenya. The Kenyans, surprisingly, were not into this. So the British came down hard on the local populace. It is one of the most brutal examples of jackboot colonialism, even by British standards. Even Winston Churchill, one of the most racist people to ever live, even he was taken aback by the level of crackdown in Kenya, describing it as, and I'm quoting Winnie here, butchery. Thousands of political agitators were rounded up and placed into concentration camps. Just straight-up concentration camps. There is no other way to describe them. Oh, wait, yeah, there is. They were gulags. The fact that one of the most authoritative books on this issue is called Britain's Gulag by Carolyn Elkins should tell you all you need to know about whether or not these were gulags. Hint, the answer is yes. So that's not just me being me, that's how actual historians view it. So we've got thousands of people in gulags, the rest of the inhabitants of the highlands, those that weren't seen as enemies of the state but needed to be removed so that the British could have their lovely farmland, they were migrated en masse to rural ghettos. Millions and millions of people just up and moved out of the way like District 9. And if anyone had a problem with this, then they had to answer to the British military. At least 11,000 people were killed, and that's just the confirmed number. Estimates run much higher. The British massacred the local Kenyans. The smaller number of British troops kept the much larger local population in line through sheer brutality and terror. Thousands of people were massacred in the streets. 1,090 people were publicly executed. And then there was the torture rape. Hey everyone, this is future me from the edit. I actually cut a whole section of this show out of the show, uh, detailing the war crimes that the British committed in Kenya during this period. Because we 
don't need those details. I've always tried to be on the side of never shying away from how horrible the past was, but the Mau Mau Rebellion was just... It's, it's sickening. It's literally sickening. It made me feel uncomfortable merely to recite the records, and even more uncomfortable to listen back to them. So if you want to know more about this, you can look it up in your own time. Just Google British war crimes in Kenya, but you are going to need therapy afterwards. How bad could it possibly be? Well, let's just say that they invented a new tool for castrating people. That's how bad. And that's all I'll say. Back to the show. So all of that is happening while Queen Elizabeth was there. She got to see it in person. But remember, she's not political. She doesn't get involved. That's what people loved about her. So not a fucking peep about the worst atrocities you've probably never heard of. But that's a one-off, right? Wrong. In 1954, the newly minted Queen Elizabeth toured the British colony of Aden, what is now modern-day Yemen. And just like the Kenyans, the Yemeni were not at all keen on the British, and they didn't give a shit about the new queen. So they protested. The problem with this protest was that it was a bad look for the new queen. Because everyone loves the queen. She's the most magical person to ever exist. There can't be newsreels out there of people (gasps) protesting the new queen. Think of the optics. So what we got was one of the most heavily staged managed appearances by a public figure in the history of people smiling and waving. British officials found enough people who were willing to play ball to line the streets and cheer the new queen, making it look like she was just as revered in Aden as she was in London. The cameras kept a tight shot, of course. They never actually panned out further to see the violent protests taking place a few blocks away or the staggeringly brutal reprisals from the British troops while the Queen was visiting. If you'd like to know more, you can Google British war crimes Aden because it was almost exactly the same thing as what happened in Kenya and it was just as sickening. And remember, Queen Elizabeth was there. Either she knew that people were being raped with barbed wire so that she could take some fancy photos, or she was the dumbest person on the planet. And I think we've established that she was pretty canny. Take a look at some of the photos from the Queen's visit to Australia in 1954. Read the articles. They talk of everyone's excitement at catching a glimpse of the magical Queen as she drove past them, slightly waving her hand. And while Australia didn't suffer the same genocidal treatment that the African nations did, none of the photos show, and very few of the articles talk about, the fact that temporary walls were set up along the roads of the town of Shepparton in Victoria so that the Queen wouldn't have to look at the Aboriginals as she drove past. Yeah. It's worth noting that in 1954, when this happened, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to vote, nor were they constitutionally recognised as people. In 1953, British Guyana in the West Indies got entirely too progressive for British liking. Literally, the People's Progressive Party won in a landslide. 
This was threatening to the British because they looked like they were going to lose another colony. So they sent troops and warships to suspend the country's constitution, depose the democratically elected leader, and put a stop to all of the anti-British nationalization that would have eaten into quite a few people's profit margins, least of all the Queen of England. For someone who has recently been remembered as the great decolonizer of the British Empire, Elizabeth Shaw seemed to have no problem sending large amounts of troops to places that no longer wanted to be colonies. Also in 1953, they were busy that year, the British-led Operation Ajax led a coup d'etat in Iran, overthrowing a democratically elected Prime Minister Mossadi and installing a monarchy. The Shah of Iran was informed of the success of this plan through pre-arranged coded messages in BBC broadcasts. Two decades later, the British would assist the CIA in deposing the Shah, this time installing super-fundamentalist Ayatollah Khomeini and setting up the current shitstorm that's happening in Iran. I'd go deeper, but I've got a future show on this mostly written. You will be getting it soon. On the 30th of January, 1972, the Bloody Sunday Massacre occurred. You've heard of this. You two have a song about it. Admittedly, tensions were high between England and Ireland due to the Troubles, but Bloody Sunday occurred when the 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment of the British Army opened fire on a peaceful protest march in Derry. 26 people were injured, 14 people were murdered. The Savile Inquiry by the British government would later find that the shootings were, quote, unjustified and unjustifiable murder of unarmed protesters. End quote. On the back of the findings of this inquiry, British Prime Minister David Cameron issued a formal apology to the victims. What does this have to do with Queen Elizabeth? Well, for one thing, she never apologised for the Bloody Sunday Massacre. But what she did do was pin a medal, an order of the British Empire, on the chest of the commanding officer who ordered the massacre. And then there was the time that Queen Elizabeth personally decided not to stop a rogue governor-general from dismissing a democratically elected Australian government. The Queen argued for 40 years that she had no knowledge of these events carried out in her name and at her assent, but after multiple High Court appeals, the documents were finally released that showed that Elizabeth did, in fact, know the whole time that John Kerr was planning to sack the Whitlam government, and she did absolutely nothing to stop it. I'd go into this more, but that's going to be this month's Patreon-only show. Hint to go and check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash time. Protesting the Queen has always been a good way to find yourself on the wrong side of the law. If you think this is something that only happened in the colonies, or it's something that happened in a different era, here's one last shot across the bow. When the Queen's ridiculously expensive, taxpayer-funded funeral procession was passing through the streets of England, English people were arrested for calling Prince Andrew, quote, a sweaty nonce. That's enough to get you arrested. In 2022 saying that the Queen's son is a sweaty nonce. 
which is one way of putting it. The way I'd put it would be to call it like it is. Prince Andrew is a fucking pedophile. But just saying nonce is enough to land you in the lockup. Queen Elizabeth II was, as we say in this show, a complicated character. And while we shouldn't celebrate her death, we sure as shit don't have to mourn her. The hagiography that we've been subjected to over the last month has been downright offensive. But I'm sure the fullness of time will reflect on Elizabeth Windsor of saxe coburg gotha in an appropriate light. Hell, we're only just starting now to come around to Christopher Columbus, and his own diaries documented the numerous atrocities he committed, so it might be a while before we get around to Black Betty, but I just want it known, historians and archaeologists of the distant future, I want it known that I was ahead of the curve. But for now, let it be known that the monsters in the real world don't always look like the ones in the fairy tales. Not every villain in history has the Saturday morning cartoon evil of a Hitler or a Tojo or a Mussolini. Sometimes, actually most of the time, evil is much more subtle, much more banal. Usually the monster is the one you don't suspect. Sometimes the monsters in history are the ones that look like sweet little old ladies. It's said that All that is needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And if that's the case, then the most charitable thing you could ever say about Elizabeth Windsor is that she stood by and did nothing. But now we all know that it runs a lot deeper than that. And I didn't even get to the part where she was the Pope of her own religion, which is another topic for another time. People have been talking about how great it was that Queen Elizabeth was such a religious person, which should always be a red flag at the best of times, but here it isn't even a valid point. Queen Elizabeth was the head of the Anglican Church. I'd be super religious too if I had my own religion. Would you call me devout if I were the grand poobah of Damoism and went around saying, Damo be with you? No, of course not. So why is it seen as a virtue when Elizabeth did it? Double standards. Third worst thing in the world. Queen Elizabeth was not a good person. You could say, and many have said, that the crimes of the British Empire shouldn't fall upon the shoulders of Queen Elizabeth, because she was a ceremonial figure and didn't have any real power. Again, it's a very poor argument, but it's the only argument the apologists have. We've got enough evidence here that the Queen didn't mind getting her hands dirty when it suited her. But let's assume what is obviously incorrect is true, that she was merely symbolic and ceremonial. In that case, she still allowed herself to be ceremonial. She allowed herself to be the symbol of Britain. Everything the British did during the reign of Queen Elizabeth was done in the name of Queen Elizabeth. Every. Single. Thing. I can jump on a train right now and travel down to Sydney Harbour and when I get there, I will see ships that have HMAS ahead of their names. Her Majesty's Australian Ship. Those are warships in the name of the Queen. All Acts of Parliament during the reign of Queen Elizabeth started with the words, The Queen's Most Excellent Majesty. The Parliament. 
the judiciary, the armed forces, people from other countries who became English. Each and every single one of them had to swear an oath of allegiance to Queen Elizabeth. And you want to tell me that she bears no responsibility for the actions that took place in her name? The name you swear upon? Every single second from 1952 until last month, she could have said something. She could have said anything. And she didn't. She could have got up and walked away. She wouldn't have even been anywhere near the first royal to do just that. She could have just walked away from the acts being committed in her name, and she didn't. I spoke a little bit about the crown jewels in the last show. The largest gem in the crown jewels is the largest diamond in the world, the Cullinan diamond, and I spoke about that in detail. The rest of the crown jewels is made from various precious gems that were plundered from the rest of the world. The Kohinoor diamond from India is only slightly smaller than the Cullinan, the Star of Africa, and it is currently being worn by Camilla Parker Bowles, the woman who Charles cheated on Diana for. All of these gems are the property of the crown, gifted to them, inverted commas, by nations who were living under the jackboot of British colonial rule. And those countries have been demanding the return of their precious gems for decades. These gems are not the property of Britain. They are not the property of the public. They belong to Queen Elizabeth, and now they belong to King Charles. And at absolutely any point, Queen Elizabeth could have just given them back. It was always in her power to do that. But she didn't. She liked the shinies. She liked being one of the richest people in history. She was, to quote a Scottish Twitter user, an utterly shite person. Betty didn't choose to be the queen, but she chose to remain the queen. And every single day, except Christmas Day, she received briefings from all of the nations in the Commonwealth detailing their top secret actions, and she still chose to remain the queen. Because it made her rich. It made her powerful. It made her one of the most comfortable people in the history of mankind. Life is fucking horrible for most people on this planet, some more so than most, especially if you're getting your balls cut off by a British officer for demanding some freedom. Most people struggle through life, but not Elizabeth Windsor. She rode a gravy train so profound that most humans cannot conceptualize it. And she was willing to overlook all manner of evil to keep those good times rolling. And that is all that is necessary for evil to triumph. So now you know. Now you have a counterpoint to the sickening hagiography that we've been forced to endure for over a month. I feel it's incumbent on me in my position as a broadcaster to offer a counterpoint, to offer context, to broaden the lens. Because for people outside the Commonwealth, you have no reason to disbelieve the propaganda being thrown about regarding Queen Elizabeth. You may well think that she is one of the most universally beloved people to have ever lived. And that is far, far from the case. Outside the Commonwealth, people are indifferent to the Queen. And rightfully so. 
America has a weird fascination with the royal family, but then America has a weird fascination with a lot of things. America loves its kings, from George III to Larry. In England, things are different. They're indoctrinated from birth to believe that the Queen is the second coming of Christ. They go from the cradle to the grave with a Manchurian candidate level of programming that she was the most wonderful person to ever live. Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. But for those of us that are far enough away from England to escape this inception, but are still bound to their archaic system, well, there are millions of us who fucking despised Elizabeth Windsor. And while we're not celebrating her death, not a single fucking tear will ever be shed. She was not a good person. I've been publicly campaigning for my country to become a republic since I was 14 years old. I'm almost 38. I wanted it a quarter of a century ago. I wanted it yesterday. But I'll settle for tomorrow. Who's with me? I just gave you all the justification you'll ever need, and I left a hell of a lot out. Let's liquidate the monarchy. Let's take back our goddamn swans.